Hey, it's Agrita Dandrao, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of the self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper individualism as we move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. Today, we reunite with Chastelyne Pierre Paul to continue on the conversation from the previous episode on decolonizing our relationship with money as a means to build multi-directional wealth and well-being, specifically focusing on the liberatory practices of repoliticizing language and identity in today's episode. Let's say gender neutrality and inclusion and all that, it's trendy politically in some DL circles that are Anglo-centric, but African indigenous culture has been doing this forever. So for me, it's when the jump from grammar to ideology awakens me to a new construct of the world, which makes it also very obvious this narrative that white history is, history is false. And then I get to properly honor and respect, you know, indigenous knowledge systems that predate what we're looking at as so-called modernity. And it also expands my mind where I have so many different ways of interpreting the world that English becomes secondary and not particularly relevant. Right. So, oh, okay, that's been said in English. That's a sign note, but it's not like the the driving force of my work is going to be Western decline. You know what I mean? So those are ways that practically I can see it in the sound and the grammar and the ideologies. Everything that decenters the norm that is colonially convenient is something that in grammar I'm pushed aside. Chess is a multi-award winning DEI expert and global thought leader. Their mission is to help the most disenfranchised humans on earth go from generational debt and poverty to multi-generational wealth and healing. They run Chesseline Incorporated, the most innovative and transformational DEI consulting firm and digital global edtech company in the world. And they use low-cost online education to help queer, BIPOC, Gen Z and millennial college and university dropouts live amazing six-figure lives and careers without ever going back to school. Chesseline shows them how to thrive and not survive in a white man's world without selling out, giving up or settling. Welcome back to the show, Chess. It's really, really lovely to have you here again. So good yes. <laughs> yes, yes, so soon. I'm so excited to be continuing on the conversation from the previous episode, which is around decolonizing money and also activism within the multi-generational wealth and well-being base. So today's episode is going to be diving a bit deeper into the language side of activism and healing. But again, before we begin, love if we could just take this time to sort of relax ourselves into this moment that we're co-creating by just doing a little breathing exercise together. So again, as usual, it would be great if you could just slowly close your eyes and sort of just get into the moment here. I think what's so important about doing this exercise at the beginning of every episode is just really becoming aware of our surroundings and our bodies and realizing how different perhaps certain moments in the day are to this one where this moment is just being dedicated to allow ourselves to just slow down and pay attention to the body being in a head-centric world or a world which really focuses on the mind and not really the connections between the mind and the body it can become quite difficult to prioritize the body and also understand how the body responds to certain situations so i think this moment is very beautiful here that we're sharing 
together. And I hope you feel as much gratitude to this moment that you are, or this time that you're giving yourself and this space that you're giving yourself today. So we're just going to start off with our back and just very carefully and gently stretch out your back so that you're sitting up straight. It's kind of feeling your spine straighten out. And again, staying within the limits of your body, what you find comfortable. That is really, really essential in this exercise here that we're doing. And now just gradually allow your back to relax. Let your spine sort of fall into this position that is comfortable for you. So you're not too, you're not sitting up too straight and not too slouched. Really feeling yourself falling into that point of relaxation. Now we're going to move to the shoulders. So allow your shoulders to sort of rise up. Push the shoulders back. Again, gradually allowing the shoulders to fall down. And remember, whilst we're doing this, keep on taking deep breaths within each movement that you are doing. Okay, next we're going to move to our arms and our hands. So you could have your hands right now cupped on your lap or placed on your thighs in whatever position they're in right now. Allow the arms and the hands, both of them being connected, just allow them to relax. Also, if your fingers are locked in a position, just kind of let them loosen up. We're going to move down to the legs. Again, just loosening them up, relaxing them. Even if you're sitting in a cross-legged sort of position, you can still sort of feel the legs relaxing. Hopefully you are in a bit more of a comfortable position than what we started with. I just would like you to place one of your hands on your stomach area or your heart. Just getting ourselves ready to take those deep breaths, really bringing our focus to our breathing. Just feel how the body sort of rising up and down as you take the breaths. So we're going to take five deep breaths together. But again, feel free to pause the recording and take more breaths. We're going to take our first deep breath. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. 
Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Inhale. And exhale. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. As we gradually get us out of this exercise, in your own time, gradually open your eyes. Thank you so much again for joining us in that. Yeah, so Shes, I think there's again a lot to unpack as usual. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just to set the context of today's episode, it would be great if we could just start off by asking you a bit about your story as a first generation Haitian and how being raised by immigrant parents really informs your work in multi-generational healing and wealth, particularly for disenfranchised people, or perhaps people who have a similar background to you, you know, they have that immigrant um, background. Oh, for sure, I'd be happy to. So my, my family is interesting in terms of, you know, I was born and raised here, and I'm seated from stolen indigenous lands. So I was always in the midst of so many cultures when we had, and also because I was the first child, they were extremely traditional mm -hmm. when they arrived here. And I've seen how they've parented my brother extremely different. Like he had the softened version of a parent and I had their hardcore immigrant experience with them. You know what I mean? And yes, um, yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of community living. So when we moved in, we were in a very small parent apartment and all my aunties and uncles that got to Canada through the same space that we're in, we all lived together. So it was multi-generational. Mm -hmm. It was community living. And those are so values that we carry from back home, right? Yeah. And also the added layer was my parents are political refugees. Before they got here to Canada, they left Haiti. They were in Dominican Republic. So they had spent some time there. And Spanish were also part of the culture and also that added layer. And we do have family in DR. So we had Haitian, Pearls, we had French, we had English, and we had Spanish as a basic. So I grew up in, in that ecosystem. And that was my normal, right? And being from political refugees that were fighting for a lot of human rights, civic rights in Haiti, we were extremely politicized from a young age. So I was used to being at the table, but my aunties, the grandma, the grand uncle, all together speaking in Haitian and debating international politics and Haitian politics and talking about the diaspora. So it was very rich and layered. And from a young age, we used words like, you know, talk about racism and we talk about oppression. But I'm grateful to my parents that it was in a way where it, it didn't weigh me down. It just opened me up to a lot of system awareness. And I was able to make connections to phenomena that we could observe here where we were, but also things that was happening in DR, other things that were happening in Haiti, things that were happening in the States with the family there. So that's kind of how my journey started. Another layer to that, right, is that there was 
kind of this own token divide with me being born here. And for the longest time, I was treated as an outsider when it came to me having an opinion on culture or an identity that was different from their norm. And that's where I started realizing a lot of internalized racism in the family and the community structure. Um, And I have this saying that, you know, whatever the culture is, if you can give me a definition of what it means to be fill in the blank, what it means to be Black, what it means to be Haitian or whatever, chances are you're talking about a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Because there's not one way to be anything. And you're kind of feeding into the trope of white supremacy. White supremacy is very keen on telling me what provokes my blackness and what's protected. And we have kind of that similar experience as reverse imagery through uh, the reality of internalized racism. So I had a lot of people that, you know, would say have an accent when I speak. I'm not black enough. I'm, I'm too white. I'm this and I'm that. To discredit what I was saying politically about our culture that was a trigger for them because I was coming at it from a different experience, right? Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. You're part of every world, but you're not necessarily validated by any one specific community. And this woman I adore, Concha, we can't talk about how she was, she has similar experience and she's like, it's the equivalent of walking through the desert. And then you realize that all you have is the water that you have with you. But then at the end of the day, you realize that's all that you need. And to me, that's the metaphor of, it, it was interesting that I was trying to seek validation from people who didn't respect my identity. And I kind of restrained Haitianness from my parents' experience of the country, right? And I was trying to fit into their archetypes without truly understanding what is Haiti beyond my parents' gaze, mm-hmm. because that becomes a limitation, right? And that took me on my journey of, I don't want to have an intermediary between me and how I get to relate to my culture, because that is a limitation that's restrictive. So I started teaching myself the language. I understood some of it growing up, uh, but then I got educated and I bought a couple of books and I started the journey connected with Creolists. That's why I'm doing my research on my master's about the African Indigenous and Afro-Indigenous roots of Haitian Creole, which a lot of anti-colonial Indigenous researchers call Haitian, because we revoke Creole as a language classification. Um, because it's a colonial construct. But all that to say, it's the gift of being from all those places is you get to understand all, but not necessarily be seen by anyone. And I had to make my peace with that. And that's the kind of freedom. I know Maya Angelou talked about how freedom is belonging anywhere, which is nowhere, which is everywhere, right? And that took me a minute to understand. And it's kind of this analogy from this great pluralist I love, who said that when he would talk about voodoo, and our culture to other folks, they would think it was a practitioner. When it would talk to Catholicism uh, about, you know, Catholicism to Catholics, they would assume that it was Catholic. And I think that a lot of folks that live in the third culture, like myself and like others, we are able to embrace so fully the culture that until the other one is brought up, there's an assumption that this is all we are. And that creates a lot of confusion to people who have very stereotypical experience of what culture has to be like it's a scripted definition that you have to perform and there's things that you can do that will Mm -hmm. disqualify you from being enough or too much of any given culture which is a lie so for me it's been a process of reclamation and rematriation of being my own version of culture in a way that my parents don't need to understand and I don't need to be seen by them to validate my own experience and to understand the necessity of me in my culture, Mm -hmm. but it's been making my peace with being rejected, but understanding that as a preacher would say that everybody's blessing is 
acceptance is a blessing and that everyone's rejection is, is a curse, right? So there's freedom when you're not trying to get validated even by those who love because now you get to have a fullest experience of who you are on your own terms and not trying to fit in into anyone's box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's something that I've had to come to terms with as well. And I think a lot of this work is centered around identity, right? Cultural identity and understanding that identity is not a singular thing. It is multidimensional. And for people who are immigrants or who have that immigrant background for their family, bridging that sort of cultural divide is is a main, it's a really big thing. So how important is identity work within this space? I think a lot of people will just feel as if, you know, for example, they're not uh, American mm-hmm. or they're not Haitian mm-hmm. there there's something in between that and a lot of us feel as if we need to label that which does have power I think labeling and naming does have power but at the same time being able to go beyond the constructs and labels and categories is also an important thing but it's a scary thing to do yes. you've mentioned that you know you've just uh, kind of stopped feeling the urge or the need to explain yourself constantly mm-hmm. about you know what you identify as but if you could give some advice I think for young people sure. in particular Definitely. yeah it's a, it's a major thing that a lot of us have to process so yeah how did you kind of become resistant to that urge to categorize your identity yeah I think for a lot of it it's it's kind of layered there's this part of me where I start that there's a lot of freedom that comes from being misunderstood. Mm. Every time I'm trying to defend, protect, or justify, it's, um, you know, it's like me making the argument for why I have the right to exist culturally the way that I do. It's a very warped sense of logic. So I I honestly take a lot of, I laugh a lot internally nowadays when I hear people making assumptions or populating their own definition of who I should be culturally. And what I hear is their limitations, their their judgments, their prejudice and also their internalized racism or externalized racism. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of us, we feel like we have to defend and protect. And so I make a distinction between culture, community, and also those kind of biases, right? And so when I hear that said, they don't get to gatekeep a culture that existed, that predates them, Mm -hmm. but also that defies their understanding of who I am. Um, and also the way that I look at it is every one of us is once in a universe. We're not even one in a million, but once in a universe. And so how can somebody who is not me define what I should or could be based on me being an unrepeatable instance in the whole fabric of time and space, right? So for me, it's kind of like I look at it as a dotted line. Everybody is a dot on a continuum of culture. My parents are perfectly positioned to be on their dot, but I am on mine. And if I were to remove myself, something would be broken in the whole cohesion of our community. So for me, it's stopped with me trying to be like my parents or like my family back home when I stop looking at it. Because if I'm so busy performing their identities, there's a camp that's left behind. And I wasn't meant to be them or else I would have been. I was meant to be something different. The gift also that I see is because I, I'm so embedded in all those different cultures, I notice how when it comes to equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility, there are a lot of gaps. What I have access to here as Christian, that's born where I'm born, in comparison to my grandmother or other family back home, is drastically different. So I look at it as a strategic privilege to say, how is it that based on who I am, 
and and how I self-identified where I exist in this specific political time and space, how is it that I can leverage the fact that I'm a bridge to create more opportunities for people that are in our community? Mm-hmm. So for me, for example, is a lot of the innovation and work that happens in my field exists in English. It doesn't happen in education, science education real. So instead of trying to fit into what already exists, which is a waste of time, it's looking to what are the gaps that my community is not self-empowered at that level to meet that I, because I'm uniquely different, but still belong, I can funnel back to them in a way that is culturally relevant for us. So for me, it's looking at the kind of research now, um, creating that research and making it available in our languages, Mm -hmm. which is something that we wouldn't have been able to. So I think when we shift the focus away from trying to fit in, because fitting in is not freedom, it's erasure. So you erase yourself and you become so diminishable that the only thing I can recognize about your identity is how good of a stereotype are you? Yeah. People that tell you what, oh, you're not Indian enough if you don't do this, or not Asian enough if you don't do that. I listened to them for a minute because I want to entertain the logic, which is very deficient. <laughs> and I was like, yo, by the way, everything you're saying, Karen, the supremacist, agrees with you 100%. I'm wary of people's definitions of our cultures where white supremacy would agree with how you describe what I'm supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? So too often we don't challenge the logic. We don't doubt that people are doubting us. And that's a distraction away from bringing the focus back to who we are. I wasn't supposed to be like you. You're hundred percent. We're not the same, but the prerequisite to belong is not the imperative to fit in. So it started with that kind of thinking, right? And I looked beyond that gaze to look at what it is that I can help make accessible because I speak, literally, I speak different languages, right? And then create that level of access. And also for me, to be honest, there's also the narrative of a lot of the time, the people that we're trying to fight or fit in with are people that when we are truly objective of ourselves, we don't hold a lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. So why would I perform an identity that's going to be appealing to a gatekeeper that at the end of the day, when truth be told, it's not even somebody who's close to what I want from my own life. I want their approval, but I don't really give them, I don't really hold them in the scheme like that. You know what I mean? So those different ways that I can set myself free. And um, yeah, and to your point, that's how it correlates to my work. I've never seen, especially here, somebody who's fluent in my native Afro-Indigenous language that's doing work in coaching. All I see is people in our communities are very white passing, have a lot of privilege, speak English, perform a lot like this identity that's very stereotypical about what it means to be Haitian. I see that profile. I don't see an alternative though, right? So for me, it, it speaks to, again, there's that. And I want to be fluid enough that I don't, I don't subscribe to the thinking that somebody's 50% something or 50% that. Yeah. It's like you're looking at someone, oh, you're 50% your mom, your parent's daughter, and you're 50%, I don't know, a mother of your child it doesn't make sense we're 100 percent all our identities yeah so even the notion of like quantifying qualifying that's a supremacist attitude right it goes back to the racial superiority complex where one percentage that they have predetermined of anything invalidates all your other identities so again when you sit and you question the things that make you doubt you you end up doubting death not yourself mm-hmm. and that is a layer of freedom and then for me the question is if i'm once in the universe what is the one thing that only I can achieve through my identity that nobody else in my culture has been called to do? And that shifts the focus away from 
you being insufficient so much so that you have to perform to, you know, your community or a gatekeeper, it shifts it away into looking at how is it that you being unique is not a liability, but it's the gift that is necessary for the advancement of your whole people. And that again, changes the focus. And I'm not trying to be like them. I'm glad that I'm not. And I love them for who they are. And and correlation, I respect myself for being called to be what nobody else can. And I want to play with that. I don't want to perform and I don't want to be a stereotype. I want to be free. And there's no freedom in performativity. And there's no freedom in fitting in. And for me, it's this beautiful paradox of I belong everywhere, but I fit in nowhere. Mm. And that's my definition of freedom. Yes, beautiful. I love how you sort of conceptualize it within the universe and um, within the continuum as well. Like, yeah. I think that's a very beautiful way to put it. And also you said something about being the person that your culture and like your community needs you to be is is really restrictive. Rather, if you can just be who you are, that can open the doors for so many people, including yourself, but also for other people who are, you know, they don't have the capacity to do what you are doing. And also just bringing something to that culture and to that community that perhaps they really required and needed, but they didn't have any sort of idea of it, that they required this. They required people to be very, you know, kind of just have a healthy relationship with individuality. That's something. I think living within a Western culture, we understand how individualistic it can be. But at the same time, we need to understand the power of individuality and the power of sort of owning yourself and being yourself. And Mm -hmm. again, you are connected within this ecosystem that you're in. But I just think a lot of people don't see individuality as a good thing. Like we don't, we don't tend to see that. It's either be very individualistic or just you don't have your own identity. It has to be connected to a community or to a group or to a space to a belief system mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a very beautiful thing that you've you've said you know in terms of like the, the universe and middle yeah. part of it and we have a major role to play within that as ourselves so i liked how you were talking about language in particular in english and how again linking back to the previous episode that we had together how english in itself can be very exclusionary and gatekeep certain concepts certain parts of knowledge that can allow people to liberate themselves from Mm -hmm. these systems right and that requires a lot of privilege in itself so i think to sort of dive in deeper into that i'd love to just ask you what decolonizing language really means to you because you're using this framework of english which in itself is great. And we're not here trying to put non-English languages on a pedestal of some sort and sort of reject English itself. That's not the point. But what does then decolonizing language mean within this work for you? Yeah, I mean, I did, I remember back in the days when I was more in the polyglot community, so multilinguals, there just a lot of things that were really irking me around how Indigenous languages, non-Western languages, non-white languages and all that you know were represented and it compelled me to kind of understand why is my intuition so agitated agitated by how we are misrepresented i knew something was wrong but i didn't know what it really was i noticed how for example for me when you look at lots of languages like spanish german any language like haitian curl whatever i would hear a lot of people kind of putting this comparison of english is superior yeah 
And all because it's uh, more sophisticated and those languages are easy to learn or others would be called gibberish, right? Mm. Like another extreme. And what I noticed, let's say I take an example like Spanish and English. People that were really quick to see it's easy to learn. What I noticed is they had a very colonial attitude towards learning. So what they do is they center English in all their languages. So they do the least minimum effort to reach outside of their experience. And so they, they, I, I say that they speak English in all the languages. So when they speak Spanish, I hear the English grammar. I hear everything. So they do not decenter themselves. And that's a colonial aspect where the, the compulsion is always towards taking everything that is self-determined and forced it to be subjected to English as a standard. Mm-hmm. So instead of honoring the grammar for all it can offer, they look to the one person of grammar that would be able to be hijacked by English enough that they say, hey, I speak the language, I learned it in two weeks and it's easy. Yeah, but honey, you can do that with any language. It's not specific yeah. to Spanish, right? So a lot yeah. of this thing and be fluent in two weeks, be fluent in three weeks. And I notice that's what overrides that process. For me, when I'm learning my languages, I'm excited by the part of the language that is so uniquely unrecognizable that it has to only be Spanish. It has to only be Haitian. So I do it on many fronts. I look at synonyms. So one of the first things I do, I look at synonyms because there's 20 ways to say one word. And I look for the roots of it that it's extremely African, extremely indigenous, extremely Afro-Indigenous. Like you look at that, you have no choice but to say, yo, that's Haitian. I don't understand what it is, right? So it forces you and say, it first it decenters English. It reawakens and recenters African Indigenous knowledge systems that are their own self-contained uh, paradigm. It's not even to be compared with anything, least of all English. For me also, the beauty in that is the sounds. I'm getting used to making new sounds with my mouth. Mm-hmm. That is also another way for me to decenter English more fully because I'm not necessarily using the same alphabet. I'm not necessarily using the same sound system. So even my body is getting reconnected, in my case, to my ancestors because I'm making noises and sounds that we've been you know, using and developing for millennial. And I'm part of that continuum. The other flip side to me is the grammar. Grammar is another way where I can hear your thinking in the other language. Because on many regards, grammar is a sense of logic, not just you know, meaning and expression. So the word order, a lot of people will use the same word order that they do in English, Mm, right? Yeah. Very lazy. You know what I mean? Like very lazily colonial as a practice. And you go, oh my God, that's so easy to learn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's easy to learn. Right. Yeah. So for me, it's again, I sit with the language and I decenter myself. When I look at a structure that um, I get excited when I wouldn't have said it like this, I've never heard it before. I understand what it is, but it wouldn't have been my instinct to frame it quite that way. I pause when I look to something that is outside of my lived experience. I pause when I look to something that is not colonial by default. You know what I mean? I get curious, I get excited, and then I want to deep more into that. So for me, with Haitian Creole, a lot of her proverbs and sayings and indigenous teachings, the grammar of it is extremely African. You wouldn't understand it were you to speak French or English or what have you. That's where I pause. And so I force my brain to think different mm-hmm. through the grammar. As opposed to be very lazy and I'm going to use subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object in Spanish, in Haitian, and then I call myself a polyglot, right? So I really investigate. And when I go deeper as well is I look at different concepts. Like in, in Haitian, slash Haitian Creole, like many other African, indigenous, indigenous languages, we don't have, we have pure gender neutrality. If I talk to you, you have no idea the, the, the gender, the assumed gender of the speaker or the object, right? Um, now... 
you know, let's say gender neutrality and inclusion and all that, it's trendy politically in some DEI circles that are Anglo-centric. But indigenous cultures, African indigenous cultures have been doing this forever. So for me, it's when the jump from grammar to ideology awakens me to a new construct of the world, Mm -hmm. which makes it also very obvious, this narrative that white history is history's fault. And then I get to properly honor and respect, you know, indigenous knowledge systems that predate what we're looking at as so-called modernity. And it also expands my mind where I have so many different ways of interpreting the world that English becomes secondary and not particularly relevant. Right. So, oh, okay, that's been said in English. That's a side note, but it's not like the the driving force of my work is going to be Western defined. You know what I mean? So those are ways that practically I can see it in the sound and the grammar and the ideologies. Everything that decenters the norm that is colonially convenient is something that in grammar I'm, you know, I'm, I, I push aside. And also I look to people that are luminaries. I have one or two per community. I don't need that much because the work is so deep. You have to sit with it. And those are humans that defy any stereotype that people could use to define my culture. Oh, we know Haitians are such and such. And then I look at this powerful woman. She defies all conventions across all era. And those are the kind of people that I hold in esteem to help me understand why it's okay to be me, why it's okay not to fit in, you know, when I need those things. But it's also people that help me understand that modernity and innovation don't belong to white privilege. And that we've been doing this forever, like millennials ago to this day. And again, for me to get more educated about different things, like just this morning, I was doing afro breath work to help self-regulate my neural system, right? So those are all things that are steeped in language and culture, but then they're much more expensive and they help me decolonize my whole experience of where I come from and who my people are. Yeah, thank you so much for dissecting that, you know, in terms of the grammar and like the order of words. That's something that I actually realized whilst using Hindi, for example. And I think one issue, or at least the way we can sort of become aware of the issue around sort of centering English when we are using these non-English languages you can't fit in those languages within that framework and we can see that but I think that comes when we try to translate some of these concepts and these ideas and these beliefs like right a lot of the languages that we're talking about here are very intimately tied with a lot of the belief systems of the places that they originate from and there's an issue of mistranslation that a lot of us do not understand how violent that can be. Mm-hmm. For example, if you look at English translations of particular scriptures or um, mm-hmm. cultural texts, you can already see that a lot of the meaning is lost, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that for me was yeah. a really important part in actually understanding that, well, actually English has been centered when these translations have occurred. Mm -hmm. And even, for example, if someone tries to ask me, oh, you know, what do you say in this, you know, in this language or like in Hindi uh, for this English word or this English concept? And then you think, oh, well, there's so many different things, right? There's Mm -hmm. synonyms, but then there's a metaphors and then there's a poetry within you know, like a single word. So there's so much there, so much culture and tradition and ritual and ceremony tied within these words that we're using, right? And I think mistranslation or just the practice of translation itself is a colonial practice. So getting away from that need to translate certain ideas and concepts is a really big form of resistance. And that's something... I was thinking about when you were talking about all of this. It's really 
important that we resist that a lot of the time and rather we can say well actually what does this word mean just as for like the language itself right so just try to I think understand like the concept or like the context even behind that word rather than trying to translate it directly to English yeah big thing I feel like in my research is something that I'm trying a methodology to translate anti-colonialism so it's mm. beyond decolonialism and anti-colonial because I make a distinction for me decolonial is assuming that the starting point is colonial then you have to undo that mechanism yeah. and for me anti-colonial is no starting point was ever rooted in colonial it's only non-colonial systems right when you talk about translation there are so many things I was laughing inter- internally because I've had similar instances to you it feels like but yeah when you're compelled a lot of the problem is how we translate they use English as a standard for what the result needs to look like. Mm-hmm. So if English uses five words and your language uses 20, they're going to use that as a means to depreciate you to say that it's not economical, it's not this, it's not that. So if the outcome needs to look like what the target language is, in this case, English, we have an issue because I'm not allowed to be me. Sometimes I have one word that means 20 in English or zero because you don't have culturally that reference, right? But and also it's people who expect a duolingual level translation. Oh, give me that quick. I need context, honey. Like, yes, as you yes. said, there's so, it's nuanced. It's rich. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not a plug and play that you get to have like this on the go. And when you truly honor knowledge systems, right, you have that, that understanding that everything is nuanced. I could give it to you 20 different ways. They will all be valid and all different. It's all contextual. Another thing for me, when you talk about resistance, is there are things that shouldn't be translated because it's sacred. Yeah. So there are things that I'm not going to perform for your entertainment of my culture so that you feel like you got a whiff and you disrespect your out of context. Like even people from our community, they need to demonstrate a certain sacredness, right? To be able to have that level of access. So I'm not just going to give it away willy-nilly for your consumption and for your entertainment. My culture is not your entertainment. Um, so that was also another thing that you brought up that came to mind. And when it comes to your example uh, of, you know, colonial translation, it's it's different a little bit for me because it was a political agenda. So they erase and they perform what we call cultural linguistic genocides, right? Mm-hmm. So they removed our culture and then they imposed their own. Another thing for me also that I'm mindful of is it's trendy to have a lot of English in your other languages yes. because it yep. elevates your status, mm-hmm. gives you status and privilege. So for me, I do the reverse thing where every time we have a word for it, I will use my Afro-Indigenous root and I'm not going to use English. I'm, English can is not endangered. English doesn't need, you know, my own validation of it beyond what it's already amassed for itself. So that's also something I do. I don't leverage other colonial languages for status, appropriation purposes. And for me, it's the other thing. For me, more than stat- status, it's identity. That's my core metric of worth. So I would much rather look like this, you know, interesting human being who's using all those words that my grandma used to use to be able to portray the same thing. And to your point about how to translate in a way that's not colonial, I'm more into what I call retranslation. So for me, it's like I look at the essence of the meaning. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not trying to have English grammar. I'm not trying to have the same word count. I'm not even trying to have the same cultural references, right? Because if in Haiti, we don't have snow, and you'd be talking to me about no, I don't see why I should try to enforce, you know, that that paradigm and then kind of decenter my culture and still elevate English. To your point, something that I love to do is I retranslate. Mm-hmm. So I really look to our own um, 
our own references, our own culture, our own ancestry, and those become the references that I care about. And um, and I want to elevate, you know, our own reference system in the same way that I say pizza, and pizza remains untranslatable. I have different concepts that are very representative of our cultural ways that I choose not to translate. I mean, I'm going to use it in English. I will give you a mini definition, but that's the word I'm going to use because that's what I'm elevating. If you can see sushi, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And you can see pizza and macaroni and all of that, and it's cool. Well, you're going to be cool with what words I'm going to introduce to your repertoire, right? So for me, it's about equalizing what is worthy of untranslation, also having different means to resist. I'm thinking a lot of indigenous circles. I adore how it's more about our language over colonization uh, purposes and also out of resistance where you're going to events and there are parts of the events that are not translated. That's something that I have tremendous respect for, right? Because especially when we're looking at indigenous languages, languages that are almost extinct, languages that have gone through different linguistic genocides that are being revived right now, there's a symbolism but there's also a humility for me. It's humbling to be in a room where you're the only person who doesn't get what's been said. Mm-hmm. I can still get the energy. And it's happened to me a lot uh, in events that I've hosted where we each spoke in our own native indigenous language. And sometimes I would know what they said because of the energy, not because of the words. Mm-hmm. So it pushed us beyond, you know, word. Um, language and performativity and really back to connection yeah beautiful I love that and just talking about the sort of context behind the words that we use right the non-English words that we use from non-English languages it is also about lived experiences we are talking about for example Haitian language but within different communities a single word or a concept can have a different meaning because it's linked to their lived experiences right of that particular Mm -hmm sort of microculture and I think that's so important because as English in itself it is sort of homogenizing right the experiences and the meanings attached to English and that's Mm -hmm. a big problem right there but then if you look at non-English languages and indigenous languages and you see Mm -hmm. how contextual and how place-based they can be like they're not even (laughs) they can be they are I think that's so important Every single person will have different experiences. Every single community will have different experiences. And even if they're using the same language, the histories behind that usage is also important to look at. And it's also important to value that. Um, And I think that also goes, for example, religion and faith, where a lot of people think there is a particular structure you need to follow, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes really dogmatic in that way. When in fact, there are so many different histories and ancestries even attached to those beliefs and the language and mm-hmm. I think just valuing that is so important because mm-hmm. language in itself and culture is so diverse and that diversity is what sustains the language and the culture uh, for future generations I think that was really really key when we were talking about language seeing it as contextual but also it is a sort of way to embody lived experiences within these words mm-hmm. it's, yeah the words in itself hold that for us definitely because as you're talking a lot of people presume that if something is universal it's really equitable but that's not true it's just another yep. hidden way to promote a very supremacist agenda and supremacist is at the end of the day the ideology that the one it could be one specific culture one specific people is superior in, in all ways right so just because english let's say could have 
a compulsion towards standardization doesn't mean that every subsequent other language ought to as well for them to be deemed inclusive or universal. And universality needs specificity, right? So it's not so much that it's one for all, one size fit all for all, and then we're inclusive. That has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with it. Um, And even as you're talking about, you know, place-based words and all of that, I noticed that a lot of people that get very offended by certain words or very directly things you said about when it's appropriate or not have a very scarce understanding of true history because the same word across time will mean different things, across regions will mean different things, and across peoples would mean different things. And it happens all the time, like even in you know different languages that I study. In one region, even the pronunciation, the grammar changes, let alone the meaning. Yeah. So as you said, being dramatic, it's it's very representative of your own limitations not the language limitations languages don't have limitations but people that speak them have biases that pretend that they do mm-hmm. so yeah language is very all-encompassing in, in that sense yes so just asking you a bit about you learning right your indigenous haitian language in terms of the intellectual divide that we were talking about in the previous episode, right, around English and um, certain scholars, for example, certain leaders that are using English within activism spaces, they have this tendency to safeguard and um, to gatekeep certain concepts because of, I don't know, their sort of limited understanding of what it means to be an intellectual and what intellect actually means for them. So when you have been learning your language, have you seen a difference in terms of intellect? Right, Because of course there will be scholars in, in the Haitian language, but have you seen any differences in, in practice of that language uh, for scholars yeah. who are Haitian and, and for English scholars? Mm-hmm. Definitely, because in cultures where our people have been banned from speaking the language, Owning your native language is very political. Yeah. So already the kind of Haitian intellectuals who would be all about revitalizing the language or putting it on the map would be extremely politicized in comparison to the other ones that are more status or privilege oriented that are going to only prioritize colonial languages like French and English. Mm -hmm. So the choice of the language often was going to predict the kind of topics that they're going to engage more. Because if you're only writing in Haitian, already few adults would even know how to write and read it because it was banned from school. We have seven reforms that made it illegal and punishable by law to speak and learn the language. So we're talking about that level of oppression. So even the ability to know your language is so limited. So the few who do understand how, where, and how much of a privilege it is, they probably had to fight to learn the language. So that's going to be reflected in kind of education they're going to have. They tend to be um, educationalists that are going to be much more on the ground. As opposed to people that only speak to colonial German languages, they have so much status and privilege, they tend to gravitate towards more of that. And I don't want to make crafts over generalization, but it's just when you look at the choice of language that is a precondition for the kind of activism that you have easier or lesser access to, that part is true. Um, and yeah, so I noticed that for sure, like as a, as a divide and when it came to more status or privilege oriented, there would be that disconnect from the people, mm-hmm. right? In our case, like uh, the whole community, 95 to 99% were Creolophones. That's your core language. So if your activism, let's say, universe or our community is in French, you're alienating 95% of the demographics, which means you're only speaking to power and privilege. So already there, whatever work you're doing is not going to 
able to percolate the people who need the most because they don't have access. So that's also another indication of how impactful you're going to be. If in no way amidst your whole activism strategy, do you factor in for accessibility to language? That's also a very pragmatic level kind of consideration that not everyone is that. Yeah. In terms of the work that you do, it would be amazing if you could sort of map out the sort of techniques that you use within the DEI space for multi-generational wealth building, which is something that you center in your work. And also how you go about in addressing these issues so that certain histories of violence, for example, are not replicated, right? Like as, as you're mentioning, the sort of privileges that people from both areas, so for example, non-English um, language scholars and English language scholars, right? Both of these people can hold that privilege so what are the sorts of techniques that you use to so that you know you're not replicating those exclusionary and practices and also practices that can be violent for the health of the language for sure like for me i have just a handful of amazing i'm gonna call them scholars who don't necessarily identify as such um and that's my my foundation so for example i was trying with you right i'm all about elevating and representing the richness of our culture by looking at synonyms, words, expressions, grammar that is extremely Afro-Indigenous in nature. So even when you look at it, English or any other colonial language could not even be a standard for comparison because they're completely unrelated. Yeah. So that for me, it's what I'm honing for myself. And I'm sharing this with like my family as well. So I live in also community live in multi-generational family structure and I think the kids that also have access to that. So that's one thing. One of the other things I'm going to do, that's going to be my goal for next year because this year I already have a program, but next year I'm definitely going to focus on making this methodology accessible to first gen and other generations, especially like Gen Zs and millennials that are taught into different cultures, don't know how to learn the language, don't know how to speak it, don't know how to maintain it. Because even when you know it, if you're predominantly in white-dominated society, how do you elevate your culture and then feel like you're refreshing, catching up, and trying to sustain it, but it's very unsustainable? So that's also one of the other things that I do. Um, what I do, too, is I have a very multidimensional experience of my culture from how I dress. Like, I, I find out more about, let's say, our hair and what it represents, about our head wrap and what it means, about, like, different designs that our ancestors created and the correlation to spirituality. So I literally embed myself in that. I call those like my micro immersions. I've learned all my languages without traveling. So you don't need a lot of money, but you do need a certain sense of structure and knowing how you learn. When I do those things as part of my mindfulness practice, and the names are going to be indigenous, you know, all those things. So it's a way for me to always call to mind my language in different ways that can be more or less active than others. Then I also have, um, let's say, my Afrobeats that I listen to that are bilingual in English and Yoruba, or it could be other languages. And I rotate them based on what I need. I have my music. That is my favorite music. And I will give myself challenges like, what is your best uh, music in Haitian, like Haitian Creole, that is the opposite of what the story time of your culture is? Mm -hmm. I love a lot of Rapa, Racine, Rabodai, Yonvalu, all those music types that even Haitians don't know. So again, it's anti-colonial, but it, it's, it's, you know, it's immersive yeah. in a way that makes me fluent in my definition of culture. I decenter a lot of other people. I do a lot of fusion cooking. So I'm from different cultures. So I'm going to have different foods together. But again, it's all part of my mindfulness. The thing that 
everybody who's a true polyglot multilingual will tell you is need to talk to yourself. So when I do my journaling, I'm looking at my journal books here. I do it in Haitian. And other times I can do it in, in Italian, but these days it's mostly in Haitian. Um, and then when I do my prayers, I do multilingual prayers. So often people feel like they can't sustain reconnecting, reclaiming their roots because they're in competition with the colonial ideology. Yeah. They don't know how to be fully everything without needing to fit it into one. So for me, it's like everything I would have naturally done, I can add an element to that in my native culture that I adore. And that makes it organic. And it makes me 100% me and all my expressions. Me as somebody who's born here, me as somebody who's not from here, me as somebody who speaks this language and that language as well. Like you allow it to look like what you feel as opposed to look like what you've been told it should. So those are all small and low ways. I have my notebooks and it's all my favorite words and expressions in Haitian that I carry with me all the time. And sometimes I would go to the bathroom. It's with me. When somebody's late on an appointment it's with me, so I always literally carry my, my culture with me. Then I have my favorite plays. And what I adore with it is now I understand most of it before I didn't because it's very indigenous, the way that the language is worded. But then I can track my, my progress in terms of now understand 90% before I understood 30. But it's an immersion and it makes me so happy and proud. Mm-hmm. Then I have my Instagram. I'm this beautiful woman, Tamkaha. I mentioned her before at Udunifi History on IG. And she shares like the most phenomenal pieces of real history knowledge from anti-colonial African indigenous communities. Just blows my mind every time. And then I make connections of, oh my goodness, we have this too, or this is where this comes from. And it just gets me very immersed and interested and also screening my news through African indigenous owned platforms that promote beautiful things that are happening, which breaks the colonial narrative that we are the poorest countries and peoples on earth, because that's not true. We have wealth, we just don't have accessibility in certain fashion because of colonialism, right? So again, it's everything that distorts, that just interrupts that narrative that's very colonial about what I am and what I am not and my own culture. And I make it my own lived experience. That's amazing. I love it. And I love how all of these practices are really embodying the sort of um, experience, right, of being a Haitian person for you. And that's lovely to hear. And what's great about it is that everyone can do it. It is accessible for everyone to do. Actually stopping and thinking, wait, okay, so I'm journaling here in English. What if I sort of embed certain words from my language as a starting point? Or for example, the music that you listen to, what if I try to find pieces of uh, music that aren't as colonial, right? Or they're not using as much English. I think that's really, really lovely like you said it's all about accessibility so that if we can we can start from the small things and sort of embed them into our life i think in that way you don't feel so much pressure because when we are talking about decolonization it does seem very system level um, and it requires a certain level of power and privilege when in fact working from the bottom up working from the day-to-day right what we call the mundane i think that in itself is very revolutionary and that is what causes change in community. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for that, Shess. I'm so energized as always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just speak so beautifully and you just articulate so many things that a lot of us, right, as immigrants or as children of immigrants, we struggle to name for ourselves and to identify for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for this episode and also for the previous episode. Mm-hmm. I feel very, very grateful that you've come into this space 
and yeah I'm just I'm just really excited to have this episode release out into the world (laughs) very soon but yeah thank you so much for that it's amazing the work that you do thank you thank you for having me for this beautiful sleep thank you for listening to the mindful of everything podcast subscribe to the podcast and follow the show on instagram and facebook Don't forget to give a rating on iTunes so that the show can reach other wonderful humans like you who also enjoy engaging in the conversations held in the space. Connect with Chess on Instagram at ChessNeenPP and visit mindfulofeverything.com for full episode resources.